Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is George Cooper. I'm a medical writer, podcast host and producer, and I'm very pleased to be bringing you a discussion around the gold standard of care for allergic rhinitis, looking into the best new treatments with reference to the current guidelines. Before we get started, a few housekeeping notes. This medical education activity is funded by the Menorini Group. Providing us with their insights and expertise today, I'm delighted to introduce Philip Ruardi, who is a professor of otolaryngology and head and neck surgery at Ioneer University Hospital in Beirut, Lebanon. Professor Ruardi is currently president of the Pan-Arab Society of Allergy, Asthma and Immunology and a member of the House of Directors at the World Allergy Organization. He is also affiliated with the ARIA Committee on Allergic Diseases. His research focuses on rhinitis, sinusitis, pollution, chronic cough, and mobile health. Professor Rawadi, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you very much, and uh, I appreciate uh, having me on your program. I can honestly say the pleasure is all ours today. Firstly, I think it would be a good idea to start with the basics and take a look at allergic rhinitis as a whole. So, in your own words, what is allergic rhinitis and what are the symptoms of this condition? Allergic rhinitis can be best described as a genetically determined hypersensitivity reaction of the nose to environmental proteins. And whenever you have that hypersensitivity, these proteins are called, obviously, allergens. So these allergens belong to pollens, they can belong to dust mites, fungi molds, in addition to animal dander and insect protein. And this hypersensitivity reaction manifests typically as four classical symptoms. Obviously, we have the sneezing, itching, rhinorrhea, and these are mediated by histamine. And the fourth symptom would be nasal congestion, and that's also mediated by molecules other than, than histamine. So the pathogenesis of allergic rhinitis is, is quite complex. It is mediated by different inflammatory cells. You have cytokines, you have neurogynes. And most importantly, it involves an early allergic reaction, which usually occurs within minutes of exposure to the allergen. It involves mast cells and histamines. And there's also a late response within I would say 12 to 24 hours following exposure, and this involves mainly eosinophils and manifests as nasal congestion, which is, bottom line, the most important or bothersome symptom of allergic rhinitis. I mean, it sounds awful. I've, I've had a mild cold this last week, and the nasal congestion has been driving me to distraction. So to have this as a, a chronic condition must be horrible. What sort of impact does the condition have on patients' lives? Unfortunately, allergic rhinitis is not a trivial disease. You know, this is contrary to, you know, what people think and how patients especially perceive it. Uh, allergic rhinitis carries quite a high clinical burden and it significantly affects our quality of life. So much so that the new classification, I would say the relatively new classification of allergic rhinitis by the area committee acknowledges how much this 
disease interferes with our daily activities, such as, you know, studying, uh, doing sports activities, sleep, so on and so forth. It must be an incredible burden for the patients that live with this condition. How, how is it diagnosed and are there any challenges when it comes to diagnosis? But for diagnosis, I would say you basically need three things. First, detailed history, classical detailed history. And with that, we look for disease pointers, which are symptoms that would tilt our diagnosis towards allergic rhinitis. The second thing that you need is a very comprehensive physical examination. And that sometimes can necessitate you know, doing nasal endoscopy under local anesthesia in, in the clinic. We have long reported on the benefit of internists and allergists and pulmonologists of uh, doing and training you know, them on doing uh, local endoscopy because they really reveal quite a enormous amount of information on the uh, pathology uh, which is present inside the nose and which is something that Sometimes you cannot see by doing a, a simple uh, examination of the exterior of the nose. So the, the third thing that you need for diagnosis, I would say, is a, is a high index of suspicion. And with these three tools, the history, the physical examination, and you know, the, the high index of suspicion, you can easily diagnose 50% of those cases. And if you're skillful enough, you can diagnose up to 75% of those cases that present to you to the clinic without resorting to advanced objective allergy testings, such as skin testing or blood testing. I can mention some clinical cues which can aid in the diagnosis, and that would really give you an edge in uh, diagnosing allergic rhinitis. You see, the birth cohort studies tell us that we develop our allergies after the age of two years. Before that, our immune system needs to be sensitized quite frequently to the allergen for our immune system to develop clinical symptoms for allergy. So we really acquire the disease mainly during school age or young adulthood. And if you ask those patients, if they are young, what kind of symptoms do you feel? And they would immediately answer you that they get those typical early morning crises of repetitive sneezing, itching, rhinorrhea, and then also nasal congestion. But sometimes we have noticed that those four symptoms of allergic rhinitis, which are classical symptoms, they graduate with time and manifest solely as nasal congestion. So you have the, the four classical symptoms at the beginning, and then with time, for some reason, you know, the most common symptom that you would manifest would be nasal congestion. So based on what I said, you know, allergy is not treated below the age of two years. And we rarely diagnose, on the other hand, allergic rhinitis in the elderly. So it's the age in between. Also presence of other comorbidities with allergic rhinitis, such as allergic conjunctivitis, atopic dermatitis, especially asthma, is also an informative cue in uh, the history taking.
A history of previous improvement on anti-allergic uh, therapies would also tip the diagnosis towards allergic rhinitis. And of course, since this is a genetically determined disease, you know, a family history of similar symptoms is also an important factor in the history. Are there any different types of allergic rhinitis? And if so, how do these, do these differ in severity? Well, we have to agree first on the, on the terminology because in, in the U.S., we still use the terminology of seasonal allergic rhinitis as opposed, and this is not the case in Europe. So in the U.S., we refer to allergic rhinitis as seasonal, and that's related to the pollinating season. And we also call it perennial allergic rhinitis, and this is related to perennial allergens that are present year-round, such as the house dust mite and the fungi. In Europe, we have used a different terminology, and that's the one adopted by, by AREA and AYAKI, which is intermittent and persistent, as opposed to seasonal and perennial in the Americas. So intermittent allergic rhinitis is when the symptoms occur for lo- less than five days per week, and less than five weeks per year. And persistent allergic rhinitis is when the symptoms occur at a higher frequency than that. Now, each of these subdivisions of intermittent and persistent can be classified by severity, depending on how much these symptoms interfere with our daily activity, as we said previously. So you have the intermittent versus the persistent, and then for each Subdivision, you can get, you know, intermittent, mild, moderate, or severe intensity, so on and so forth, depending on how much uh, the disease is uh, affecting your quality of life and your activities. So now we've covered the condition itself, let's turn our attention to the treatments that are on offer at the moment. Uh, But first of all, let's talk about the guidelines a little bit. Uh, What do the current treatment guidelines for allergic rhinitis suggest? For management guidelines, we have three major headlines. First, obviously, is avoidance of exposure to triggers and allergens. And sometimes that's Difficult to implement totally. Second would be pharmacotherapy, which is probably we're going to discuss down the road, but that's quite efficacious in randomized controlled studies. Uh, and third is, is immunotherapy. And because we are going to discuss a section on uh, pharmacotherapy, I'm going to elaborate a little bit on uh, immunotherapy, which is the only treatment known to alter the course of the disease. And with immunotherapy, we're giving incremental small doses of the allergen to the patient till we reach maintenance doses. And by the way, that has to be given for several years. By doing that, we we can trigger the development of blocking antibodies to IgE, which is known to mediate allergic rhinitis. And with that, we can hold, to some extent, the immune reaction in allergic rhinitis. Now, immunotherapy, or known also as allergy vaccination, can be given either subcutaneously, and this is quite 
popular in the U.S., or it can be given orally in the form either of droplet or tablet form, and this is quite popular in, in Europe. Now, we know that both treatments, whether subcutaneous or oral therapy, are safe and efficacious, and the meta-analysis of these randomized-controlled studies demonstrate that immunotherapy significantly improves not only symptoms, but also quality of life in patients with allergic anitis. It can uh, even uh, inhibit the development of new allergies, at least we have data in children for that. Now, unfortunately, the treatment has to be given for several years, so you know compliance to the treatment by the patient is an important issue. Interestingly, we have recently gathered real-life data using the Mask Air, you know, mobile application uh, endorsed by the Area Committee, and that real-life data was gathered from different countries, and that data clearly demonstrate the efficacy, uh, at least, of sublingual immunotherapy in improving the global symptoms of allergic anitis. So again. Avoidance, pharmacotherapy, you know, and last resort would be immunotherapy if all treatments fail. And with immunotherapy, we do have the issue of compliance, but then that's that's quite efficacious in improving the symptoms of allergic anitis. I'm I'm curious. Um, you say um, immunotherapy is the, is the last resort. Is that purely because of the longevity and how long you have to um, have these treatments and the, and the struggles with adherence? Is that the only reason why it would be the last resort in your opinion? Well, the practice depends actually on different countries. You see, if you want to go by guidelines and these, you know, are basically consensus of different international societies, uh, the guidelines would recommend that you use that as a last resort. That's a patient who has moderate to severe allergic rhinitis. He has also, also other comorbidities uh, related to uh, allergy or atopy. And, you know, by giving immunotherapy, if, if that particular patient fails all different types of pharmacotherapy, then the last resort would be immunotherapy. Uh, and with that, you'll be actually hitting more than or improving more than one organ with one type of treatment. In other countries, the practice is different. They might offer you immunotherapy, uh, I wouldn't say quite at the beginning of management of that, but not in such an advanced case where your symptoms are refractory to all kinds of medications. So it really depends on the, on the approach. You see, immunotherapy is, is, I wouldn't say a relatively new thing, but it's gaining, gaining momentum recently in the literature. And some people might argue that you might give immunotherapy as a prevention to development of allergies, future allergies. So the guidelines would say it's a last resort, and, but you know, it depends on, uh, the approach depends on the country that you're practicing it. Understand. You mentioned the pharmaceutical drugs uh, in your uh, answer there. We, we, what pharmaceutical drugs are currently available for allergic rhinitis and how effective are they? Well, I would divide pharmacotherapy uh, into two main categories. We have, you have the main treatments and you have the supportive drugs for allergic rhinitis. Of course, the main treatments are 
the antihistamines, you know, these are the oldest therapies that have been in the market for by now 90 years. And the other main treatment is the newer topical steroids. And these have been in the market now for almost half a century. Now, the supportive ones uh, would be, you know, topical or systemic decongestion, decongestants, excuse me. You have nasal saline washes. You have, you can use occasionally, you know, systemic steroids in cases of severe allergic rhinitis. But with respect to efficacy, this uh, deserves like special, special attention in, in my opinion. Now, when you look at randomized controlled trials and the patient reported outcome measures, these medications are quite efficacious. They not only improve symptoms, but also they improve your quality of life. But we have to differentiate between efficacy and disease control. Because you get efficacy from randomized controlled studies. But that's different from disease control in real life, which unfortunately is poor. Now, let me elaborate on this a little bit. We should remember that in randomized controlled trials, your subjects are carefully selected according to specific severity of allergic rhinitis. This is one. Also, those subjects are on a rigid compliance regimen in terms of drug intake and reporting of symptoms. And third, the duration of that study is often short. You need a minimum of two weeks, and that can extend to maybe a few months. But all of these parameters are really different from what you see in real life, where the patients can have different types of severities of allergic rhinitis. They're poorly compliant on, on medications. They're not on a strict regimen. And also, you, can, you have to think of uh, uh, that in randomized controlled trials, the allergic reaction is, is sometimes induced artificially in the laboratory, which is not similar to real life exposure. So in a nutshell, it is sometimes difficult to generalize outcomes from these randomized controlled trials to the general population. And there might be significant confounding variables in these experiments. So facing this, we do have data from epidemiological studies that tell us that a substantial number of allergic rhinitis patients report their symptoms as severe. And this is despite being on proper or guideline-based anti-allergic therapy. So efficacy is there, but Control of severity is not. So unfortunately, these patients are not satisfied with their uh, anti-allergic therapy, although there is evidence of efficacy of these medications. When you talk about pharmacotherapy and you really would like to provide your patient with optimal care, we should focus on an important concept. It's disease control. So... In my mind, I would uh, focus on three factors. Now, how severe, the first factor would be how severe are the rhinitis symptoms? 
when you want to prescribe a medication. For example, if you have mild symptoms, you can start with an oral antihistamine, especially if you have seasonal allergic rhinitis, so you get your symptoms during a short period of the year. Now, for more severe symptoms, you may elect to start on intranasal steroids. The second factor you want to look at is whether the patient that you're seeing right now is under control prior to the onset of symptoms. Because from a conceptual thinking, it is more difficult to control, to manage a patient who is uncontrolled than to manage a patient who is under control. For example, if you have a patient who has already been on oral antihistamine, then you can substitute treatment with a more potent drug, which is intranasal antihistamine or intranasal steroids. And also it's important to know the hierarchy of control medications in allergic rhinitis. For example, it is generally agreed that antihistamines oral antihistamines or topical antihistamines are less potent than intranasal steroids. So there is no point in adding an oral antihistamine to an uncontrolled patient who is already on intranasal steroids. Second, we know that intranasal histamines or topical antihistamines are placed at a superior position than oral antihistamines in terms of symptom control. Still, we know from epidemiological data that in Europe, for example, patients in general prefer the pill rather than intranasal steroids. So you would do that, for example, if you have a patient with mild seasonal allergic rhinitis. Now, notwithstanding all of that, we know that intranasal steroids are the very potent first-line therapy in moderate to severe allergic rhinitis. So you really have to look at several factors whenever you're going to prescribe those medications. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of different algorithms, but these are general concepts that we have to keep in mind. You know, uh, how can we achieve control with that patient? What was the medications that the patient was under before you know, he or she would present to you what other add-on treatments you would give. And with a good knowledge of, you know, uh, the hierarchy of controlling medications, you can actually try to offer your patient uh, the best treatment that uh, you can prescribe. Now, once you control the, those symptoms on any monotherapy or multiple therapies, you're going to taper to the lowest dose. And if the disease is uncontrolled, despite, you know, uh, giving that patient optimal therapy, then you will have to revisit the diagnosis. We have to look for other probable comorbidities or uh, that might mimic, you know, the symptoms of allergic rhinitis. And if that, you know, fails, you're going to offer your patient immunotherapy, which, as we said, is the uh, third or last resort. And this is a game changer because it changes the natural course of the disease. And what, what are the shortcomings of these current allergic rhinitis treatments? Are, are there any side effects, if any? 
We all know that anti-allergic medications are not without side effects. For example, you know, sedation is a known effect of antihistamines. Some molecules, uh, you know, like fexofenadine have minimal sedation, where others like cetirizine, for example, have higher reported sedative effect. But I think uh, ultimately there is a genetic factor involved herein. And, and it has to do with genetic predisposition uh, for the antihistamine to cross your blood-brain barrier and cause sedation. With, with nasal steroids, we talk about what we call sensory attributes of the uh, drug. And these sensory attributes, they obviously decrease your adherence to the medications. And this has to do with the formulation of the drug itself. You know, what preservatives it has, what additives it contains. And all of these, they do cause side effects, like the aftertaste, the, the runoff from the nose, the throat irritation. And also, we should not forget the infrequent, you know, epistaxis that you might get from these medications. There's so many different treatment options and obviously you have the, whether the patient's controlled or uncontrolled, the previous medications that they've taken. I mean, on average, how many drugs does your average allergic rhinitis patient take daily? It seems like it's an incredible burden. Well, that's, that's a very important question, but unfortunately, I think that's, that's very hard to answer. You know, recent data tell us that, recent real life data tell us that irrespective of how many drugs you prescribe and irrespective of the duration for which you prescribe these drugs, surprisingly, there is poor adherence to physicians' prescriptions. And that's uh, quite unfortunate. And we got, we got these, as I said, from uh, this is real-life data that we got from you know, using mobile health like the Musk Air uh, app from Area. And, you know, when you say poor adherence to physicians' prescriptions, you're going to find that very often, you know, patients self-medicate. They don't go by the prescriptions. They will refrain from taking medications when symptoms are controlled. And when symptoms are uncontrolled, they're going to switch therapy. And you know, a, a, another category of patients would be those who are on demand therapy when symptoms relapse. So, so obviously there are behavioral pathologies in patients with allergic rhinitis regarding treatment. And we had a study that has been done actually on physicians who have actually allergic rhinitis. And it turned out that also physicians behave in the same way as patients. So, Patients are very adherent, uh, uh, poorly adherent to the to the treatment that we suggest to them, and you know I think that's something we're going uh, hopefully to discuss later on. This is an unmet need, and this behavioral pathology by the patient and even by the physician as a patient would require also behavioral therapy. Are there currently any one device treatments that would make this easier to manage at all? Well. Topical antihistamines and topical nasal steroids uh, can be combined in, in one device, and we call that a combination monotherapy. And this is by far 
the most effective therapy in moderate to severe uh, allergic rhinitis. And this is data from meta-analysis of randomized controlled studies, and they unanimously show superiority of this combination therapy over intranasal steroid monotherapy. Now, interestingly, you know, the Mask Air Mobile uh, Health application provides real-world evidence that combination monotherapy is superior in efficacy and compliance. That's an important thing compared to any monotherapy in moderate to severe allergic rhinitis. So I believe personally that this combination monotherapy is pivotal in the management of allergic rhinitis. Now, currently, uh, we have topical azelastin, which is an antihistamine, and fluticasone propionate combined in a in one device and this has been available in the market for some time by now and there's recently a new FDA approved combination uh, monotherapy uh, of topical uh, olopatadine and mometazone uh, that's being launched now in Europe and the and in the US and we really look forward to have it in the market very exciting prospects. And you mentioned how patients uh, in your previous answer uh, self-manage and um, the, the struggles that they face when trying to do so. What would you suggest in terms of self-management with this condition? As a physician, what can you do to support your patients uh, better manage their allergic rhinitis? Well, you can do a few things uh, at home. Uh, you can do also avoidance measures in the office or or during your leisure time to avoid triggers of allergic rhinitis. Uh, in seasonal allergic rhinitis, for example, patients can avoid outdoor activities during days of high pollen counts. They uh, also should avoid opening windows, especially early in the morning during the season. And patients... Uh, with dust mite allergies, you can advise, uh, for example, regular, regular vacuum cleaning to remove the dust either at home or at work. And you can also avoid domestic items which can collect dust, especially in bedrooms or uh, and sitting rooms where you can get to spend most of your time. These items you know, can be toys, carpets, bedding covers, so on and so forth. And you can even use uh, acaricides for uh, mattresses uh, against house dust mite. Now, of course, with mold allergy, uh, this is encountered in human habit in humid habitats, but they can also uh, collect in unusual places like uh, ducting of uh, air conditioning systems. Now, all these factors do help. To minimize exposure, they can decrease what you call the allergen load in the environment, but it seems that they have to be uh, conducted collectively to translate into a better symptom control. And of course, we need you know, well-designed studies to confirm all of that. I wanted to talk with you briefly about the future of allergic rhinitis treatment and where you see this field going. And firstly, do you feel like there's an unmet medical need for new treatments in this disease area? Certainly, there are a lot of unmet needs, and you know we can we can talk uh, for hours on this. But I would I would like to focus a little bit 
And, you know, the most recent uh, hot topic of discussion in terms of unmet need, I think, I think we, in allergic rhinitis, there is an urgent need for change management, right? And I want to elaborate on this a bit. You know, many guidelines in allergic rhinitis are based on randomized controlled trials, as we said. And these do propose, you know, long-term and continuous therapy to the patient. But as we said, you know, uh, RCTs are undertaken on highly selected population, so generalizability is often limited. And and you know, as as we discussed it in real life, you know, patients are dissatisfied with their treatment and they remain in poor control of their symptoms. You know, their adherence is poor. And patients uh, obviously treat themselves according to symptoms, irrespective of how they understand allergic rhinitis. And co-medication is driven by symptom severity. So we need novel treatment options to address this specific unmet need. And these medications, these new treatments should demonstrate faster and more complete control of allergic rhinitis symptoms in direct observation studies. And, and I think, you know, combination monotherapy, you know, might be one, uh, one of those tools. And also these medications, they should show uh, superior efficacy irrespective of disease severity. And I find really, you know, mobile health of great uh, importance in this sector. So what we have seen is that many patients with allergic rhinitis are on PRN medications. But guidelines have not approached this issue yet. So we can resort to what we call a drug repurposing. And in other words, you know, exploring a new medical uses or indications of currently existing drugs. And this can be based you know, uh, it can be demonstrated using randomized controlled studies. It can be demonstrated using read-word data and even chamber studies. You know, the, the FDA and the EMA have already approved uh, drug repurposing based on read-word data for palbociclib. This is used in breast cancer. Or, you know, for the well-known antihypertensive drug, which treats erectile dysfunction and prostatic hypertrophy. So. Certainly, there are many reports in the literature which have addressed the PRN use of antihistamine or intranasal steroids for a variable period of time. You know, we have done a similar small size study back at the University of Chicago 20 years back, and we have uh, demonstrated, though that was a small sample, that you could use intranasal steroids, PRN for five days, and then stop. There are a couple of recent well-designed uh, studies, although they are small studies, that, you know, would also confirm that observation, you know, using intranasal steroids, PRN. But, you know, again, this needs to be addressed in a quite larger and, and better designed studies. Just to summarize quickly before we finish, what role do you think mobile health solutions have in helping patients manage their conditions, would you say? I think that that's my, my passionate you know, question. Uh, you know, mobile uh, health apps uh, are useful in diseases usually with high clinical burden, you know, like diabetes, hypertension, 
And chronic respiratory diseases such as allergic rhinitis or asthma, you know, are diseases with, which affect really significantly the quality of life of patients. Now, those apps should comply to the concept of what we call patient empowerment, described by, by Polia Bravo. And again, this falls under the umbrella of personalized medicine. And that patient empowerment should translate into the patient monitoring, self-monitoring their symptoms. The patient should have a feedback on their management, and that app should really provide material for patient education. You know, Mask Air, for example, which is uh, endorsed, as I said, by area, not only empowers patients, but also empowers physicians as well. Now, imagine an app that gives you an information on the daily medication used by your patient. It tracks daily their symptoms. It, it can measure simultaneously the control level of allergic rhinitis and also monitor the other multimorbidities. So this is an enormous and powerful source of information, even more powerful than the data registry. And I think this is where the future of medicine will ultimately lie. So it's not only with the treatment management, but also the accumulation of data, which will lead to better understanding of the disease and the most effective outcomes. Absolutely. Just quickly before we go, Professor, what are the key messages that you would like HEPs to take home from this podcast? If they can just take home the main points that you would like them to remember, what would you say they are? Okay, well, first I would say that uh, if you spend some time with your patient, uh, you can actually diagnose allergic rhinitis, I would say, relatively easily. So again, again and again, you know, history and physical examinations are quite important in, uh, in the diagnosis. Uh, with respect to uh, uh, management of the patient, always, you know, avoidance uh, uh, of, of triggers is always suggested or always recommended, irrespective of how severe the symptoms are. Sometimes we get remarkable results from undertaking simple measures, you know, at home. Pharmacotherapy is, is quite efficacious, but as I, as I said, uh, we should always try not to impose on our patients prolonged, continuous treatments. We should allow the patient some form of self-management uh, in that respect. Whenever you're going to face a case which is not responding to classical treatment, referral is always an advice because allergic rhinitis has so many comorbidities and we need to revisit the diagnosis in case a patient is not responding to optimal uh, therapy. Uh, again, with respect to management, pharmacotherapy, uh, immunotherapy, excuse me, is the uh, golden uh, and ultimate modality of treatment which can change the natural course of the disease. And that's provided by, of course, specialists uh, and allergists. And with uh, respect to mobile health, I would encourage you know, physicians to be, enge to be engaged in activities that would 
promote collecting data on your patient uh, and you know tracking their symptoms and tracking the control of their diseases because ultimately this is going to reflect in a better understanding of uh, the disease itself mobile health is the future hope so i can see it from 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 here <laughs> <laughs> professor Adi, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights with us today thank you so much and i hope to see you again Once again, I would like to thank Professor Philip Ruadi for joining us today and sharing his insights around the gold standard of care for allergic rhinitis, looking into the best new treatments with reference to the current guidelines. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We release a new episode every Friday, as well as plenty of bonus episodes, just like this one. Until next time, thank you for listening, take care and goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.